So 1 Samuel chapter 13, um, this is kind of the section of 1 Samuel where we're talking about the rise uh, and fall of Saul, the king. And uh, up to this point, we've been looking at his rise to leadership, and at, in chapter 13, we begin to see the other side of his rise, the demise of his leadership, the fall of his leadership, and uh, it just begins to unravel, and it's unfortunate, but um, we have to remember this was whose king? This was the people's king. This was the king that the people wanted, and Samuel tried to warn them, gave them all the warnings, but uh, they did not heed his warning, and they wanted a king like everybody else, and they got one. So this, this, the story of Saul is a little frustrating, but it's also very, I would say, kind of instructive for all of us. He was doing pretty well. He started out, remember, he was kind of humble, didn't want to be the king, and he was uh, responsible. He relied on, on the Spirit of God at one point. Uh, he was a good leader to some degree. But then he begins to just kind of unravel from chapter 13 on. And uh, God gave Saul everything he needed to succeed as Israel's king. But what brought down Saul was his own wrong, bad, sinful choices. And that's the same thing that happens to us. But the first thing, it all began with I would say his demise began when Saul gave in to fear. And so tonight we want to look at fear or faith. And tonight we'll probably just look at Saul. I don't think we'll have enough time to get into Jonathan, but Jonathan is one who acted on faith, having faith in God. And Saul really was acting out of fear. And, you know, a lot of us give in to fear in a lot of different ways in our Christian lives, even as a Christian. And when we're afraid to step out in faith, trusting God wholly, we can really hinder, cripple, you might say, God's plans to use us. When we're fearful of maybe what other people think, you can hold back from sharing the full truth of the gospel and just give them some mamby-pamby gospel that won't offend anybody. Uh, when we're afraid of maybe the circumstances around us is another situation. We might be tempted to uh, do the wrong thing at the wrong time go against God's word in some form or fashion. Uh, and that was really one of Saul's problems. It's a temptation that we all face. He, he, he was faced with fear, and he chose to do the wrong thing. He, he refused to trust God. Um, now, we're called as Christians to live by what? To live by faith, right? Uh, and the opposite of faith is fear, if you think about it. So when you talk about this, this subject, we, we have to re be reminded that we're all in the same boat together. There's, there's times in our lives when we all face fear of some sort, and we have to make the proper decision to respond to that fear in the right way. So what happens here is Saul acts foolishly out of fear. And so hopefully tonight we can strengthen our own faith as we look at the downfall of Saul. So the first four verses here start us off with our first point that we will experience times of testing. Look at, at verses 1 to 4. It says, Saul lived uh, for one year and then became king, and then he reigned for two years over Israel. Okay, we have to stop right here and just give you a little indication here. There's some issues with the original text here. Uh, some versions don't even put a number. It's just blank. <laughs> okay. Uh, about the one year and the two years, because the original text can't agree on this. Um, they just kind of plugged in, in some numbers here. Now, it does say in Acts 13.21, which is inspired text, it says that Saul ruled Israel 40 years. But the age when he became king is nowhere recorded in Scripture. How this pans out, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. It's, it's kind of a minor point. But just go to say, that's why all the, t the, the different versions will say different things. Some of them don't even put a number. It just says Saul, Saul lived <laughs> and then became king. They don't, they don't put any numbers at all. 
And so there's, a, there's an issue there. Thank God it's over something as simple as this, right? It's not a real doctrinal issue. And remember, the, the original text of Scripture was what? It was inspired by God's hand, okay, in, in its original autographs. In other words, when this was recorded, it was complete, it was full. Well, over the thousands of years, you know, copies get made and things get discombobulated. And it's amazing that we have the written text in pretty much full form. There's a couple issues here, and there's a couple issues in other parts of the Old Testament where things don't agree, and there may have been an, an error in copying the original. But please understand, there was no error in the original because we believe that God's word is inspired. And, and all those issues, a lot of them can be explained away when you compare other texts uh, with the text in question. And so there's a whole higher criticism thing that you can look at that, and, and people take that to a, the nth degree. Uh, I just choose to believe that, hey, this is God's word, and there may be a little issue here, but it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, play a major factor in what we're looking at. Uh, so in verse 2, it says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And so we see that Saul is getting ready to fight the, uh, the onslaught of the, the Philistines. He knows they're kind of at bay. It says here that uh, a thousand were with Jonathan. It doesn't tell us that that's his son, but that's who it is. We'll learn a little more about Jonathan probably next week. In Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent the rest of them home. So he figured, you know what, okay, I'm going to do this wise. I'm not going to put everything out there. I'm going to select some men. And he had uh, 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 with, with Saul. He divides them up, and 1,000 with his son. And the rest of them, he says, go home, but you're kind of on call. In case something, the, the, the rafters start to rattle, we're going to call you out. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at uh, Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, what's happening here? The first point here is that there are going to be times of testing in our lives. Even as Christians, we go through trials, do we not? We go through times of trials and tribulation. It doesn't mean that we've messed up. It doesn't mean that God's checked out or forgotten you. It's just part of life. You know, if you, if you haven't gone through a ch- trial as a believer, check your pulse. You're probably not alive um, because everybody does. We all go through things like that. Uh, having trials in your life is simply being here on earth. It means you haven't gone to heaven yet. And so you will experience times of testing. But when that time of testing comes, you have to choose between what? Fear and faith. How are you going to? Look at that time of trusting. How are you going to look at that time of tribulation? Will you give in to fear and fall away from God? Or will you trust God to somehow pull you through that time and make that situation into a lesson to help you grow in your faith? Well, here's a couple principles that we can learn. In verses 1 and 2, you see how they prepared themselves for battle. And that's the first one. Prepare yourself for battle. Don't think that you know being a Christian is just going to be some... A cakewalk, all right, you're, you're in a war, you're in a battle. And so it tells us there that he got the men ready, and uh, he had a plan. He was king over Israel here, and so he, he chose 3,000 men to form the initial standing army of Israel. And he sent the rest of them home, kind of like a reserve. We get, if these guys get wiped out, at least we have some guys that can can come in to support us. So he divided the, the group there, as you read, 2,000 and 1,000 between him and his son. And this is the first time that Jonathan's name appears in Scripture anywhere. Uh, we're not told that we're, he's Saul's son yet, but we will be. He will, he will tell us that. But Saul was realistic. He knew that battles were coming. He knew that as a king, he had to protect uh, his people. And so he, he did just that. And you know what? The Bible tells us the same thing as believers. 
By application, you can take this and say, well, what about battles in our lives? What does the Bible say about that? Well, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, it tells us very clearly, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why does Paul tell us to do that? Because he knows that you have to be prepared for the battle. Uh, That's what the Christian life is. When you enter into Christ, you enter into an area where spiritual warfare is very real. It's going on all around us all the time, even though we don't see it. When you experience times of testing, you need to prepare yourself for battle. Secondly, when you fight the enemy, please understand the enemy fights back. I mean, doesn't that kind of make sense? That's what happens in verses uh, 3 and 4 here. Jonathan, in his wisdom, decided, you know, I'm not going to wait for these guys to come and attack us. I'm going to go and I'm going to attack the Philistine outpost at at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. So he kind of did a raid on the Philistines, took back a little of the territory that they took, and the Philistines heard about it. And when they heard about it, what happened? Well, it's like, you know, shaking a hornet's nest. Right? They got upset, and rightfully so. They're being attacked. But notice what it says here, that Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost. It wasn't Saul that did it. And Saul heard about it. Verse 4 says, so all Israel heard the news. And look who gets the credit. <laughs> Saul. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Well, he really didn't do that. Jonathan did. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out a little bit more about Saul And he's not likely to do that. And Jonathan probably did that without his dad's blessing. He probably thought, you know, I'm not intimidated by these these, uh, Gentile (laughs) heathen people. I'm going to let God use me in this attack. And so he went and he he did that. Um, He attacked the Philistines first. Notice where he attacked, the outpost at Geba. That originally belonged to Israel. So Jonathan was actually taking back some land that the Philistines had taken from Israel. It's kind of like what goes on in the Middle East all the time today, right? You know, the Palestinians take some land, they give it to them, and then the Israelis go and they take it back or whatever. And so he attacks in verse 3, but Saul gets the credit. And, you know, as long as the, the Israel was passive in the relationship to the folks here, they didn't really bother him. The Philistines didn't bother him. It was only when they, they went out and took back what was rightfully theirs. As soon as the Israelites attacked, it says they, they, they kind of became the, the thorn in the flesh of the enemy. They, they really went after Israel at this point. And by application, you can stop and you can say, you know what? Are we fighting the enemy? Are we having any pushback? Are we living for Christ in such a bold way that we are a threat to Satan and his forces? Or are we just kind of living a mamby-pamby Christian life and Satan's like, yeah, I'll just let them coast along. They're not going to affect me at all because they're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. See, as long as you're passive, as long as you're not growing in your Christian life, the enemy could care less. You know, you're not having an impact on yourself or anybody else. But once you start having an impact, once you start growing, once you start allowing God to have influence in your life and allowing you to be an influence in the lives of others, then all of a sudden you're a threat. And so the enemy pays a little more attention. I mean, one of the the Christian goals that we should have is to be a thorn in the side of the enemy as a Christian. That we should make them feel threatened, make the spiritual enemy of God feel threatened by our presence here on earth. So what does Saul do? Saul summons the people to Gilgal, it says. This is a place where he was confirmed as king, remember, by Samuel and the people. It was also the place where Samuel, what did he do? He warned Saul all the way back. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 8, we went over this when we went through it. But he gave Saul a prophetic warning about this incident that's, that's taking place right now. Samuel told Saul, you know, eventually this is what's going to happen. So when you fight the enemy, 
remember, the enemy fights back. And, and we have to remind ourselves that our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians six twelve. Somebody once said, the devil won't bother you while you're living in sin. Only when you're trying to get out of it. <laughs> That's when he, he starts to get busy. So we're going to experience these times of testings. We have to prepare ourselves for the battle. And you have to know that the enemy is going to fight back when you put up a fight against him. Well, the second point here is that we're going to be tempted at times to give in to fear. Look at, at verses uh, 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. Some people believe that that's, that could be a wrong number. It's probably more likely 3,000 because they only have, what, 3,000 men, right? So it's, it's kind of a, how can you have 30,000 chariots? It wouldn't make any sense. And 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, in rocks and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him. He waited seven days. Do you remember when, when Samuel said... He promised, he said, look, you're going to be in a situation you need to wait for me to get there. You're supposed to wait seven days. Well, this is the fulfillment of that. Verse 8, he says, he waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal at that moment. It doesn't give an indication that the seventh day was over, by the way. It gives an indication that it was in the midst of the seventh day being completed. And Saul was getting nervous. Because of the situation, all the people were getting nervous. They're getting scared. Philistines were going to press down on them. Samuel wasn't showing up. And it said, and the people were scattering from him. They were scattering from Saul. Now, if you're ever in a battle and you're the leader of the troops, that's the last thing that you want to happen, is to turn around and you see your troops running the other way, right? Uh, well, that's what was Saul was facing. So you, you have a little compassion on Saul, but not that much, really, because he doesn't, it doesn't end well for him here. Uh, so the people were scattering from him. So in verse 9, look at what Saul does. So Saul said, you know what? I'm going to do this offering thing myself. I'm not going to wait for Samuel any longer. Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. In other words, what he did was he took uh, this situation into his own hands. And so when you're tempted to give in to fear, first of all, your problems in verse 5 may seem overwhelming. That's most likely when you're going to be fearful. When you're looking at a situation that just seems like there's no way we're ever going to get out of that. I mean, when you, when you stop and you think about it, here's what they had. They had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and... Uh, uh, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's the Philistine side. Poor Saul has 3,000 people. That's it. He had 3,000 men in his standing army, and he's facing an army with 3,000 chariots. 6,000 people to drive the chariots, and plus all the soldiers that you would ever need to complete a, a battle. He's outnumbered. Saul's outnumbered. Saul's outgunned. And so you kind of feel for him. You know, you're kind of thinking, well, okay. I mean, I'd probably be fearful too if I was in that situation. And notice here, it says that the Philistines went up and they camped at Michmash. See that? Uh, Yeah, verse verse 11. But go back to verse 2. It says Saul chose 3,000 men. 2,000 were with Saul. Where? In Michmash. So guess what? They're retreating. They're not advancing. Remember, Jonathan tried to take back Geba, the little outpost there that once belonged to them, and the Philistines occupied that, so he went up and attacked them. 
But now they're even worse off because it says where Saul was before, now the Philistines had set up camp there. They've displaced Saul and his army from their own camp. I mean, that's just disheartening for a warrior, for somebody who's in a battle to have to give up land, to have to retreat. That's like the last resort in a war. It's the last thing you want to do. But they've already lost ground in this battle. And you know what? By application, sometimes in our spiritual lives, you know, we don't start off as a Christian here and it's just this steady, you know, rocket to becoming like Christ. That's not how the Christian life is, is it? You know, it kind of first maybe goes like this, and then oh, you hit a couple bumps in here. Up. You know, every other day, you're, you're dealing with setbacks in our own lives. Uh, I love the book that Chuck Swindoll wrote several years ago, back in the 80s. I think Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. It's a great little book on, on the Christian life because the Christian life isn't easy. But guess what? It's not supposed to be easy, right? If it was easy, we could just do it on our own. <laughs> But the Bible says we need to depend on Christ each and every day to get this thing completed. And sometimes it feels as if you're taking three steps forward and two steps back. But the, pro- the, the, the important thing is, is that we keep on what? Moving. Don't retreat. Keep on moving forward. And sometimes, you know, the problems we face, frankly, are overwhelming. We don't know how to look forward. We don't know the way forward. We don't know how we can, we're going to cope with it. We don't know how we can get up, and sometimes we feel like we can't even face another day. But the Apostle Paul felt that way. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he felt this way. This is the giant, the Apostle Paul. Here's how he felt at times. In verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. See, when our problems seem overwhelming, as they did for Saul, we'll be tempted to give in to fear. To stop trusting the Lord in faith and give in to fear. And that's what Saul was facing in our passage. And we all face that at times. Second point here, everyone around you may be responding in fear. Look at at verses 6 and 7. It says, when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid. One translation says, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and the pits and the cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. What did Saul do? He remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So not only is he losing ground to the enemy, He's losing the support of his own people. He's a commander who is commanding a, a losing army. They're just beat up. They're, they're, they're tired. And instead of standing together strong, as they should, against the enemy, they're hiding. They're hiding in the rocks. They're hiding in the cliffs. Some of them even climb down to the bottom of wells. That's what the, the word cisterns you know, to get away from it. I remember Crystal telling me when they had that missile scare over in Hawaii, she, she said there was actually parents going out, pulling up storm drains and throwing their children in them. I mean, that was probably more toxic than the nuclear waste that was coming down or that would have came down on them. But, you know, people do odd things when they're faced with fear. They also deserted. It says some crossed over the forge to get to uh, get in, Gil- in Gilead there. And, and so th- they didn't want to have anything to do with it. They didn't want to be on a losing side of a battle. They went AWOL. Uh, Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee, though no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. It's hard enough to fight the battle when you have your support system in place, right? It's a tough. War is always tough. But when everyone around you is responding with fear, it's very tempting to give in to that. That's how riots happen. That's how people get trampled, right? Somebody yells, oh, fire or shooter in a theater. Everybody starts trying to get out, and they're running all, they're fearful. They're just running over people. They don't care. And it's a crowd reaction. And so even though everyone around us may be responding in fear, stop and say, you know what, God, i got to trust you by faith through this situation. 
Verse 8 tells us the third thing here. God may not deliver you right away. We don't like to hear that, but that's the truth. Uh, look at verse 8. It says, he waited seven days, and that, that time was even set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Saul told, or Samuel had told Saul to wait seven days for him at Gilgal. Now, seven days may not seem like a long time, but you know what? When you're waiting, and you've probably been there for that doctor's report of that test or whatever, you had a concern, and uh, you know, they keep on putting it off. Oh, we're going to have the test back. It's like, come on, you know. And sometimes that's even 48 hours, 72 hours, and we're, we're going nuts over things like that. Well, here's seven days. Every day is difficult when you're under the gun, right? When you're, when you're in that time of testing. Every day is difficult. It, it doesn't just, you know, you, don't, you can't really take a day off. It's, it's just the way it is until the issue is resolved. And so as each day passed and Samuel didn't come, he's counting down the days. Saul begins to get desperate. He begins to get fearful. The enemy was pressing in. His men are beginning to scatter. He's turning around. They're running the other way. Samuel's still not there. Did you ever ask yourself why God sometimes makes us wait? Why does God make us wait? I think part of it, obviously, is to what? To strengthen our faith. You know, when we get ourselves in a situation, he doesn't just come down with a little wand and go, boom, it's all gone. You're happy again in Jesus. No. Sometimes there's consequences. Sometimes we have to wait it out. Um, And part of it is because God's plan is bigger than us. Right? I mean, here's God's plan. We're, We're looking at one little sliver of God's plan in our myopic little life here. It's like a vapor. And God's plan is so much bigger than that. You know, why did this person get this illness and end up in the hospital? I don't know. But maybe they needed to talk to somebody that was next to them. I don't know what God's plan is. We don't know. We can't question it. We do know that God is sovereign, right? We know that God is good. We know that we can trust him with the details of our lives. Those are all facts, And so we need to adopt that same attitude that David had. Remember when David wrote in Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15, he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. At times, we feel like we're being pursued. At times, we feel like there's enemies all around. And the only thing we can do is cry out to God. Now, God may not deliver us right away. But he will deliver you. That's a promise he makes. Because your time is in in his hands. He is your God. He's your Lord. You can trust him even when he does not deliver you right away. And that hopefully is a principle that gets us through these things. Fourth thing here is fear can lead you to do the wrong thing. We've all probably been there, done that. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. He does the wrong thing. He did something that was disobedience before God and before Samuel. What happened to Saul here? I mean, yeah, he was fearful, whatever. But really, what happened is he ran out of patience, right? He was, he was being pressed into a corner. He ran out of patience. The enemy was pressing in. His, his, his men were scattering. So you know what? He said, okay, I'm, I'm done with this waiting on this spiritual Samuel guy. I'm just going to do my own thing here. Bring the offering here. He took matters into his own hands. How many times when you were in a situation like that and you took matters into your own hands, did it actually work out? Usually it doesn't. Usually somehow we make the issue worse. You know, now sometimes... In God's grace, he allows us to kind of wiggle through something, and we end up taking credit for it. But more times than not, God allows these circumstances into our lives because he wants us to trust him more. And so instead of waiting for Samuel, he began to offer these sacrifices himself. If he had only waited just a little while longer, look at what it says in the very next verse. He offered the burnt offerings. He made the decision. He did it. Just bring the offerings here. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, guess who shows up? Samuel. You know, that's just the way God works. You know, if he just would have waited. 
Everything would have been fine. And look at what happens. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. You know, the seventh day wasn't over yet. And, you know, you, you might say, well, you know, what's the big deal here? He just made these offerings. Other people had made offerings. In the, it wasn't that. It was that he disobeyed the command of God's representative. Samuel was God's representative. It wasn't so much that he, he, he went through this process of offering this offering. I mean, he did it in the wrong way and everything. But aside from that, it was the idea that he, he was disobedient. This man of God, Samuel, told him just a couple chapters prior, you know what, this is going to happen. You've got to wait seven days, and then I'm going to come. I'll be there. And when Saul was pressed and Grant grew impatient, he took matters into his own hands. And he did exactly what kind of Samuel said, don't do. You need to wait for me, and then we'll do the offerings. And he couldn't wait. And so he goes out to greet him. You know, in Proverbs 25, or 29, 25, it says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept faith, is, is kept uh, safe, excuse me. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Any fear of any kind will prove to be a temptation, will prove to be a snare. But you're always safe when you choose to trust in the Lord. So we're going to experience times of testing. When you do, you'll be tempted to give in to times of fear. And that's when you have to choose faith over fear. Because as with Saul, fear leads down the wrong path. It leads us to do the wrong thing. Well, let's look at the third point here in verse 11 to 15. It's foolish to let go of God and his word in your time of need. I've seen this many times. People proclaim to be a Christian, whatever, and they get into a fix in their life, and you know what? They stop coming to the church. They stop fellowshipping. They stop reading their Bible. Why? Just because they had some trials in their life. Now, whether they're legitimately Christian or not, who knows? But that's the last time that you need to you know, turn away from God when you're in a, a dire situation. It's foolish to let go of God and his word in time of need. I mean, stop and think about it. Are your problems overwhelming? Is everyone else responding in fear around you? Is God not delivering you right away? Are you tempted to give in to fear and do the wrong thing just like Saul did? Well, that's when you need God the most. That's when you need to really cry out to God. It's a foolish thing to turn away from God at that point. And usually it goes like this. When people do that, in verses 11 to 12, it tells us what happens. They, they justify their wrong actions. Look at what it says. Samuel shows up <laughs> right after he's, the smoke is still rising from the offering, no doubt. Saul looks up and kind of goes, oh, no, <laughs> here he comes. I better go out and, and, and greet him. You ever been in that situation? Maybe you're at a function or something, and you and your wife are going like this, and you see her coming, and you, right, i got to get over here, you know, away from these people to talk to her before we go in. You know, and that's what Saul's doing here. He's kind of like, okay, I'm going to meet Samuel out there and uh, try, to, try to talk to him a little bit about what went on here because obviously he does not look happy. So he went out to meet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Looking at Saul, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you weren't showing up, and the Philistines took over Michmash. I said to myself, well, the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Look at this. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offerings. That's so like us. That's so, so human. That's so real when you stop and think about it. Um. Samuel here is aghast at Saul's actions. He's just blown away that he would even do something like this. It's kind of like when you warn your children, look, in this situation, please do not do this. Do not do this. Okay, okay. And then the situation comes and they do just that. And you're going, what haven't I told you? Didn't I tell you? That's what Samuel's dealing with here. Saul's correct answer to Samuel's question would have been what? 
What would have been Saul's correct answer? What have you done here, Saul? Yeah, he should have said, I blew it. Sorry, I sinned. But that's not what he does. He has the opportunity. He has the opportunity to confess his sin, to repent. But instead of confessing, like we do so many times, what's he do? He chooses to blame somebody else. He goes all the way back to the garden, folks. This isn't anything new, right? He blames everyone else. He blames the Philistines for getting ready to attack. He blames his own men for scattering. He even blames Samuel for not getting there on time. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to justify his wrong actions. He's putting his own justifications over the word of God that came to him through the prophet Samuel. And then he says, I forced myself. I felt compelled to do the burnt offerings. That's like saying, you know what? The devil made me do it. <laughs> you know, and you're not copping out to your sin. Listen, you are never forced to do the wrong thing. We are never forced to do the wrong thing. We only do the wrong thing when we choose to do the wrong thing. Bottom line. Now, we can be tempted. And that temptation may be strong at times. But we are never, ever compelled to sin. We choose to sin. Let's just say it the way it is. When we sin, we choose to sin. Saul thought that he could somehow seek the Lord's favor. And he thought, he was so deceived, he thought he could do it through an act of disobedience. It's kind of like God saying, you know, I just want you to trust me with this. and just, Okay, God, I'm going to trust you. But you know, I'm just going to help you out in here a little bit. And, and, and we get our hands in it, and we, we, we take over, and we mess it up. You can never, ever please God by disobeying his word. This is an oxymoron. You can never do it. Here's a great principle to hold on to. It's not the will of God if it goes against the word of God. Right? It's not the will of God if it goes against the word of God. I remember hearing from a couple when I was first a youth pastor doing some marital counseling, which I had no business doing because I wasn't even married, but they were telling me, they were in my office, they said, well, you know what, we just believe it's God's will that we get this divorce, and I said, well, wait a minute, you haven't even tried to work this thing out. You haven't even tried. Uh, well, the guy said, well, you know, I, I think it's God's will because I fell in love with the neighbor. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> you know, this is wrong on so many surfaces, and yet they really believed that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And that's a hard truth. But it's not the will of God if it goes against God's word. Proverbs 21.2 says, All a man's ways seem what? Right to him, right? But the Lord weighs the heart. It all comes back to the heart. We're so good at justifying ourselves. We're so good at justifying our sin. I can't tell you how many times I've justified my sin. Well, yeah, well, I got angry, but, you know, you did this, or they said this, or whatever. Rather than just saying, you know what, yeah, you're wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you're wrong too, but I <laughs> just, <laughs> that's how it comes out. Well, that's how it comes out, right? It really does. Jesus even said to the Pharisees of his time in Luke sixteen fifteen, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man, but God knows your hearts. See, we're all going to sin. We're all going to blow it. We're all going to be in that time in the corner where we kind of choose faith over fear, and we're going to make the wrong choice. We're going to do something. We're going to whatever that dishonors God. And the easiest way out of that is just confess it. Just tell God you're sorry. You lacked trust in him, and you want to get beyond this. We don't have to justify it because he knows our heart. He knows we're sorry. He knows we're remorseful if that's truly the condition of our heart. Notice that both of those, those verses, Proverbs and Luke that I just read, the emphasis is that God looks at your heart. God weighs your heart. God knows your heart. It's a heart problem. And this will become an important part of Samuel's response to Saul. You know, we've, we've heard... The phrase about David, right? We call him what? A man after God's own heart. 
Well, it's interesting because as you study that out, we think, wow, he was just such a, a godly man. Well, that's not what that verse is saying. Okay? See, it's not an expression, a man after God's own heart, when it's referring to David. It's not an expression of the future king's godliness. That's not what the emphasis is. It's an expression that the future king is going to be God's choice, not man's choice. Um, One commentator says this, John Woodhouse, he's an Australian theologian. He says, a man of God's own choosing is what that means. A man God has set his heart on. It is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in man's heart. It's talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in man's heart. See, we, we switch that around and we think, oh, David must have been, I want to be a man after God's own heart. Well, what that's referring to is that, you know what, when God looked at David, he said, you know what, this is uh, a, a man who I'm going to set my heart upon. I'm going to use this man. And David later will reflect on what God had done for him. Um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 21 David says this, because of your promise and according to your own heart, he's talking to God, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. According to your own heart, in that phrase is literally after your own heart. So David was exalted as the future leader of Israel because of what was in God's heart (laughs) toward David, his sovereign, gracious will. Remember, the, the name Saul has the connotation, it, it means asked for. And that's, that's literally what that means, is, is King Saul was the king the people asked for. God gave them just what they wanted. Remember, we, we talked about be careful what you pray for, because God might actually give it to you. See, he is the people's choice for king. Saul was. He wasn't God's choice. And remember Samuel, time and time again, tried to warn him. He tried to warn Saul. And his reign ends in utter failure. Now, when we get to David, David will be God's choice. And think about it. From his, from his reign comes the new Adam, Christ, you know. And, and that's such an important uh, point to make, that you have these two parallel dynasties, you might say. One is, is built on fear. One is built on faith. And you see how God uses them. So when we've done something wrong, don't add to the sin. Don't add to the situation by trying to justify it. It's time to confess. Just own up to it. Take responsibility for your actions. Um, Second thing here, there may be long-term consequences. Look at what it says in verses 13 to 14. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. In other words, if if Saul would have just done the right thing here, if he just would have waited for Samuel to get there, if he just would have, instead of responding in fear and acting foolishly, if he would have just trusted God in faith, Samuel himself says, you know what? Your kingdom would have went on forever. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, this isn't the first time, right? He warned him before about it as well. But Samuel tells you've acted foolishly. See, it's foolish to let go of God and his word in your time of need. Saul was in another time of need, and he turned his back on Samuel. He turned his back on God's representative. He turned his back on the word of God that was shared with him. And as a result of Saul's disobedience, Saul will no longer have any lasting dynasty whatsoever. God has chosen someone else. A man after God's own heart. See, Saul's problem is not that the Philistines are assembling for war. That's a problem, but that's not the main problem. Because God was going to take care of that anyway. That was like nothing. His real problem is what? His disobedience of God's command. See, sometimes when we're in a situation, a trial or tribulation, whatever you might want to call it, we get so focused on the trial tribulation that we lose sight of what God is trying to teach us. 
And see, that's what happened to Saul. He got so focused on all this other stuff, he, he didn't even realize that he was being disobedient to what Samuel had just told him. He did not listen to the word of God as given through Samuel. It's a heart problem. What do I mean by that? Basically, he placed himself as authority over God and over his word. He said, you know what? I know God's word says this. I know Samuel told me this, but you know what? I'm not going to wait any longer. I've got to do something here, so I'm going to take over. He takes authority over God's word. That's what happens every time we sin. That's what happens every time we get ourselves in a situation that is not honoring to the Lord. We, we, we more than likely have placed ourselves as the authority over God's God and his word. He loses the opportunity for his family to remain on the throne. And, and really, it's a shame because Jonathan probably would have made a great king. <laughs> he was a pretty good guy. But because his dad messed up, the whole, the whole line's wiped out as far as their, their reigning. And remember, this all happens where? At Gilgal. So Saul is rejected by God in the same place where what? He's initially made king by the people. It all happens in the same loca- location. I mean, talk about losing ground. See, it's a harsh penalty for such a little sin. But I'm reminded of John Wesley, who once said there is no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. And at this time, only Saul's dynasty and family is rejected. Remember, this is the beginning of Saul's fall. He'll still remain on the throne. It's not until chapter 15 that he's rejected as king. But it gives us an idea, really, of what what God desires from us. And so... When you, when, you, when you stop and you, you look at this, this situation going on here, you begin to realize that, you know what? When we sin, we need to ask God for forgiveness. And he will uh, do just that. He'll forgive us. In Galatians 6, 8, it says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There's always consequences to our actions. There's always consequences. But we have to learn to seek God's forgiveness, accept the consequences, and move forward in our life. Press on. Third thing here, verse 15, you may need to start all over again. Look at what it says in verse 15. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah, of uh, Benjamin and Saul numbered the people who were present with him look about 600 men that's all he had left sometimes the consequences can be severe can they not sometimes you have to start all over again you know you see these people who's their maybe their their homes were ravaged by fire or over in Hawaii the a volcano or or sometimes a flood I mean, can you imagine everything you own, everything, gone in a matter of hours? And you have to start completely over. Well, Saul started off this chapter so strong, he was prepared for battle. He had a standing army of 3,000. He waited almost seven whole days, almost made it for Samuel. But then what did he do? He acted foolishly out of fear. And the consequences are devastating. When he counted the men remaining, he was down to 600 men. You know, when you make the wrong choices in life, sometimes you have to start over. That's okay. It's tough. It's hard to start over. But praise God, he gives us the grace to start over, right? Our God is a God of second chances, of third chances, many chances. He's never through with you. Proverbs twenty four sixteen says this, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. So the principle is, if you, you know, if you fall down, get up. Don't just lay there. Get up. If you have to start over, then start over. Sometimes it's, it's three steps forward, two steps back. But the main thing is you keep moving forward. Um, probably no one has ever fallen 
harder or hurt Jesus more severely than the Apostle Peter. As recorded in Luke chapter 22, as he denied Christ, even after he was warned that he would do so. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But listen to what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, there's always that message of hope. You know, God never turns his back on his children, even though we make horrible decisions, even though we get ourselves in some some bad situations. I mean, that's what the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. It's about starting over, right? When you put your faith in Christ, God forgives you of all your sin, past, present, future. And he gives you a brand new start. You become a brand new person, the Bible says, in Christ. You have a brand new personhood in Christ. You have a brand new direction in life. You have a new goal. You have a new power for living, a new eternal destiny. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that you can start all over again by coming to him. So, what do we take away from this? Well, when we do wrong, don't try to justify your actions. Understand there may be long-term consequences. Know that you may need to start all over again. You know what? And that's okay. God has your back. He will forgive you. He will strengthen your faith. He will use you, if you're willing, for his kingdom and for his glory. So, if you're going through some difficult times, or maybe you go through some difficult times in the future, whatever it may be. Sometimes you're going to feel afraid. You're going to want to take over. You're, you're going to be tempted to give in to fear rather than to faith. Don't do it. So foolish to let go of, of God and his word in your time of need. Stand strong. Trust God. Follow God's word. Choose faith over fear. Well, next week we'll continue in chapter 13 with the story of Jonathan and this is a man who acted boldly in faith he didn't cower in fear and uh, we'll look at that next week well let's close the word of prayer and if you have any questions we can go there then father we just thank you for your word thank you for the example here in scripture even of of Saul uh, a man who acted foolishly out of fear lord help us not to be that person help us to constantly Remind ourselves that we're called to trust you, to live our lives in faith, not by what we see, um, but, Lord, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, that we would get to know you more through these studies, that we would get to know your word more, so that when we're pressed into those hard times, that we can fall back on that solid foundation of the word of God. And Lord, we just uh, pray for every situation here that's represented, every family that's represented, and we pray that you would uh, minister your grace to them. Help us to continually pursue Christ, uh, setting all else aside. And Lord, that we would leave this place being willing to proclaim boldly the gospel of Christ, knowing that it is the only thing that can save the human heart from eternal hell. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.